Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Simply Bitcoin IRL. Today, I am very, very happy. We have two special guests. We have Tomer Strolite and Dr. Jeff Ross. But before we jump into the show, I want to give a very special shout out to the Bitcoin company that powers this show, makes the show possible, Swan Bitcoin. It's the best place to build your Bitcoin stack. It's literally being built by Bitcoiners. It's for Bitcoiners. They incentivize you to dollar cost average. They also incentivize you to take self-custody. What are you waiting for? Visit swanbitcoin.com today. And if you go to swan.com slash simply and you use that, that code, you'll get $10 in Bitcoin for free after you make your first purchase. So no more delay. Let's bring up our very special guest, uh, Tomer and Dr. Jeff Ross. I want to say something about Tomer before. Tomer is the most awesome person to have conversations with. Uh, like... We get we get spiritual and like it gets deep and it's awesome and I really appreciate it. And of course, Dr. Ross, uh, I loved our conversations at Pacific Bitcoin. And every time you, you we we uh, you come on the show, we go down this like Bitcoin macro rabbit hole. So I was like, okay, let's let's bring on these two Bitcoin legends together and let's see where the conversation takes us. How are you gentlemen doing? Great. Great. Doing great. Thanks for having us. Yeah, so uh, I want to start off with you, Dr. Ross. So I think this is a, like a, a big announcement. Um, quote, my unretirement from healthcare commences on August 1st. So is that a, is that a congratulations? Are you excited? Uh, how are you feeling about it? Very much. In fact, if, if you've ever, for people in the audience, you know, uh, usually you have a different background. I have a map, but I've I changed my office back to the old way. So behind me here, these are the monitors that I'm going to be reading uh, radiology from. So um, very excited, actually. Uh, I, I had to leave radiology about uh, almost uh, two years ago um, because my business, my fund and uh, investment advisory business was growing so fast. It was just too kind of overwhelming. Um, I'm at the point now where I'm going to, it, it was a hard decision. It was, a, um, I had to really look inside myself and see, you know, how good am I for my own business, right? I've been running Veilshare for 10 years now. Um, I've decided that I'm actually the linchpin at this point. What I love is investing. That's why I started doing it 10 years ago. Um, what I don't love is running kind of the day-to-day -day operations and dealing with compliance and all the other kind of things. So uh, bringing on a new hire, a guy that's fantastic. I'm really excited to announce it, hopefully in the next couple of months. Uh, and that allows me to uh, just basically focus on investing for my clients. But then at the same time, I can go back to uh, reading radiology again, which I enjoy doing as well. So back to two careers. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, highly enthused about it. So, so it seems like you're mining fiat hardcore. This is the time to be buying for sure. Now, it, it, to be fair, it's been the time to be buying for the last year or so. Uh, and I don't want to do any spoilers, you know, for where I think things are going. But but yes, I still think this is a fantastic time to be uh, dollar cost averaging and smash buying Bitcoin. Smash, smash, buy. Smash. Tomer, uh, what's on your mind these days? Uh, I'm going to say this again. I'm going to fanboy over Tomer. Tomer <laughs> is fucking awesome. I can't emphasize this enough. If you see this guy at a conference, have a conversation with him. Uh, what's on your mind these days, Tomer? No, it's like, listen, it's different things. I really like, um, I like to try to put together different pieces of what's going on today in particular. Um, I've been writing a piece about, uh, the, all the various mysteries inside of Bitcoin. And, uh, you know, there's Bitcoin is just this, it's mysteries all the way down is, uh, is kind of where I'm getting at. And uh, it was brought. It was brought on by a discussion I had with an artist about something, and uh, he's building like a vault to, to symbolize artistically what a Bitcoin UTXO was. And I started to go down the rabbit hole of, you know, Bitcoin is actually like every Bitcoin block is like a vault within the last Bitcoin. Like there's two kinds of security. One is your private public key. The other is the, the work, the energy that secures each transaction. And they just are layered one inside the other. So it's like you're taking the vault that was the last block and putting it into a new vault that's whose strength is all the energy that went into that most recent block. And, you know, these come in 2016 vault chunks, every difficulty adjustment. So that when the difficulty goes up, the vaults get harder and harder to penetrate. And sitting at the center of all of these vaults now, there's like 800,000 and 200 and something or 300 and something. That's the block height that we're at is that one original UTXO 
with that one origin, with that op return that says Chancellor on the brink of second bailout for banks. And if you want to go in and double spend that one, you've got to break through every one of those 800,000 vaults in the next 10 minutes, because it, in 10 minutes, someone's going to find another vault that you need to break through before you can break through all the other ones. So it's just, it's this incredibly secure architecture. But that got me into thinking, you know, to solve a block, it's, it's a mystery what nonce is going to solve the next block. So each each block is like this mysterious puzzle that people have to figure out. And and the 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 solution to the like when you solve a block, then it releases the next puzzle because you need the solution to the previous block to be a part of the solution to the next block. Uh, so there's all these mysteries, and of course there's the mysteries of who is Satoshi Nakamoto and why did he make all these things uh, the way he made them, and how does you know, how does all how do all of these things about Bitcoin work? The whole field of cryptography is, of course, comes from the Greek word crypto for cryptos for hidden. So it's just it's it's this amazing mystery thing. And, and to me, like it, it's what draws mysteries draw the curiosity in us. Right. They uh, they get they the, you hear there's a mystery. You're like you want to solve it or you want to hear how somebody solved it. or You want to hear the solution. And Bitcoin is itself the solution to this Byzantine generals problem, which was a problem that. Theoret theoretical mathematicians had said they had proven cannot be solved. And yet this unsolvable mystery, unsolvable problem was solved uh, in a probabilistic way by Satoshi Nakamoto using this proof of work puzzle, you know, using mysteries. Uh, he used a mystery to solve the unsolvable mystery. So the whole thing's really fascinating. I'm trying to figure out a way to put it all into a article of the right length that isn't too much of a repeat of some of the other articles that I've written on the similar theme. Uh, but yeah, it was all kind of invoked by, I think level 39 had a tweet storm this morning about because the alien testimonies, the UAP testimonies. So he said, like, here's all these things that we know so far about it. And he tied it in, he cited a couple of my articles. Um, there's one I wrote a, a year and a half ago called why people wonder if Bitcoin is alien technology. So that obviously fit in there. And then, uh, and then I think he was questioning whether Satoshi was an alien. So he cited my article, uh, The Legendary Treasure of Satoshi Nakamoto. And that, everybody, is exactly why I'm a huge fan of Tomer. <laughs> <laughs> those, those, those articles, his work. By the way, the, 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 the video that you made that was produced, uh, Bitcoin is Beautiful. Holy cow. I guys definitely recommend that. You guys could check it at the, the, at the Swan channel. But anyways, Dr. Ross, um, so we had the the infamous and I'm, I'm going to bring it back to hopefully we can we can I, I, I want to see I want to see if we could tie the I want to see if we could tie these these two ways of, of approaching Bitcoin together and it's going to be fun and I'm looking forward <laughs> to it. So we had um, we had the FOMC meeting today. There was a point two five hike, right? Uh, did that surprise you? What were your thoughts on that? First of all, let me just, uh, while Tomer's here, say that I truly believe that Tomer, and this is not to you know blow up your skirt, Tomer, but I think Tomer is going to go down in history as one of the great Bitcoin philosophers uh, of our age, and so that's cool. So I'm I'm honored to be here with you, Tomer, and and it's while Tomer elevates all conversations, I like to bring them down. Uh, and then, and what could bring it down more than by talking about central bankers and Powell, right? So, okay. So to get to your question, they raised wait, wait, 25. Wait, hold on. Dr. Ross, I am Tomer's number one fan. Okay. <laughs> let's yeah, let's just establish that. We just established that. All right. All right. <laughs> I can be number two. That's okay. Um, Powell. So he raised, they raised 25 bips. Uh, was it a surprise? Not at all. It was, I think, 99% certain based on uh, CMA futures. Uh, heading into it. So there was no surprise at all. What I was waiting for is, is he going to come down as being overly hawkish or not? How will the FOMC minutes, that's the statement they release at 2 p.m. Eastern. Um, was that really any different than six weeks ago? And the answer is no, no. There was really nothing exciting at all about it. He basically said exactly what they said before. Um, the only change that I saw in it was uh, before they had said there was uh, probably only going to be modest economic growth uh, for the for the rest of this year. And now they think there might be moderate economic growth, which is a, like a bump up. Uh, otherwise, they said, you know, inflation is still a problem. They say we're still going to, you know, remain vigilant. We're going to watch the data. We might we may or may not raise again at the next meeting, which is in September. But we have, you know, some significant data points. 
uh, two rounds of CPI coming in uh, before that and other, you know, inflationary data and economic data. Um, so basically everybody kept asking these questions. Are you stopping? Are you not? Are you stopping or not? He's just like, I'm telling you, I don't know. We're just waiting to see what the data shows. Uh, and then we may or may not hike again in September. And so non-event, it was a no nothing burger. Central Tomer? banking is a mystery. Yeah, yes. Tomer, dive right into it. Doing? This is exactly why I brought you guys together. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm trying to synthesize uh, the things we, we talk about. It, it's interesting. I mean, I don't view central banking as that much of a mystery. It's a system that is um, uh, <laughs> that's kind of like broke, broken in its fundamentals, and and it's this hope that if enough people trust you and you're benevolent enough, you can get away with doing something that no human being should have the power to do, which is to distort the met the me the meter stick destroy the unit that people are are trying to use to measure value um and it's, um, the intention is obviously not to destroy it but in a sense it, it's to destroy the integrity of it right central banking says the dollar shouldn't have integrity to it it shouldn't be a fixed unit of value it should be one that we can manipulate to some arbitrary goals that we feel are right like we feel two percent Inflation is the target. Why? Why? Why not three percent? Why not one percent? Why not a hundred percent? Why not minus five percent? Like there's a whole range of numbers. There's a whole real number line to go for. Uh, why two percent uh, is is perfect, and and how they trade that off. So it's just like it's amazing to me how arbitrary a system we live in. And if if we're talking about philosophy and history, I think I, I think people in the future who live under a Bitcoin standard will wonder how. Um, primitive we were in the same way that we might look at people who use beads or seashells as money and say, what a primitive form of money. Um, people, people will look at central bank issued currencies and say, what a, what a vicious and primitive form of money. At least there was nothing vicious about using a seashell. I mean, they were hard, they were rare and hard to collect, but someone I guess could collect them all day. But here someone can arbitrarily decree that there will be 3 trillion more of these things. Um, and who gets them and under what terms. And, and these are always terms that don't treat everybody equally. So there are people who are implicitly disadvantaged by the system. And those are the people who are doing the hard work that the people who print the dollars get to enjoy the benefits of. So it really is a very much a master-slave relationship. And that's what makes, you know, we look back at the times when slavery was permitted and we say, what a primitive and brutal time. And people in the future will look back at this time and say the same thing. And they'll, they will pity um, those of us who were victims of the system. And they will view with, dis with what's the word, with uh, anger and shock, uh, the people who, who ran the system this way. And I think kind of what's interesting about it, in the same way that you look back at people who owned slaves, and they didn't necessarily think they were evil. They didn't necessarily fully contemplate the consequences on others of what they were doing it was just the way i don't you know i don't know if jerome powell is overtly evil what he's doing is participating in a system that's evil and that history will judge as evil uh but uh but he's just putting on his suit and coming into work and doing what he's been told to do possibly i can't I'm say here yeah, I mean, I would say that he's just he's just a product of of the incentive structure, like the incentive structure. Like he, I think this is where you get caught in these situations where you where you really truly are in a position of tremendous privilege and tremendous power, and you intentionally blind yourself to mm. the consequences. Like I remember, I I don't listen to his speeches regularly, but. Um, I want to say like roughly a year ago, as they were starting to raise rates, he, he acknowledged, he said, this is mostly harming poor people and people of color. I can't remember the exact expression he used, but he was saying like, this is harming those people who are suffer who are already disadvantaged in our civilization. It's making, it's making them not able to afford things. It's putting them out of jobs and we're going to continue to do it. So like he knows that what he is doing to get inflation under control is making things harder. And he knows that he was the cause of the inflation by 
pumping trillions of dollars into the economy to fix what, you know, and it, his whole job is sticking his finger in the dike. Like, oh, there's a problem. You know, people are locked down at home. Okay, well, we'll, we'll print more money in a helicopter in. Okay, well, now there's too much money. That's okay. We'll raise the interest rates so people can't <laughs> spend the money that we helicoptered into them. They have to spend it on interest. You know, and so he's just pulling and pushing these levers back and forth and the whole thing's out of control and it's unstoppable as, you know, other people speak about much more eloquently than me. It's like the system, the system is based off of debt. And in order to pay the debt, the money supply needs to grow to pay off the debt. So it's like it's inherently an inflationary system. And what's happening now with high interest rates, you know, what's the rate today? Five and a half percent or five and a quarter percent. Well, that's that's not just like thinking that's not 5% more than 0.25%, which was where it was at the low. That's 20 times the rate, 22 times the rate, right? Interest, you know, if 0.25, a quarter of a percent interest on $100,000 is 120th the rate of 5%. So if you're on a floating rate, you have to pay 20 times as much interest as you had to just a year and a half ago. The inflation, and you know, so like the CPI on interest has been 2,200%. Like, or 2,100%, so starting from a basis. I, I don't want to exaggerate, which is interesting, to 2,100%, 21 million coins. Maybe this is where they stop or this is where it all breaks. Um, it is just, it's shocking the severity of the intervention that they've had. And you can see it explicitly, whether you're looking at the money supply or the interest rate. Our, our money system is in danger. I, I agree. It, it it does feel that way, and and I'll and I'll and I want to pass it on to Dr. Ross. Like from the from my generation specifically, like it, it is you know uh, we can't afford anything. Like I'm super super lucky to have got into Bitcoin the time that I did, and I've been here for a very long time. But like the vast majority of of my generation, we can't we can't afford anything. We can't buy anything. You know, I'm still renting, um, and that's a story that you hear time and time and time again. And from the Cantillionaire Conference, which people call the World Economic Forum, but I really call it the Cantillionaire Conference, their own rhetoric is even telling you, like, well, you'll own nothing and be happy. And I, and I really think that they're telling you this type of stuff because they fully understand the severity of the situation for, you know, the for, 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 for the younger generations. And I think they're trying to accustom, the, accustom them to this new normal. So, I mean, to adding to what Tomer was saying, Dr. Ross, it seems like this system is is completely unsustainable. It seems like this is something that it, it, this is not a solid foundation for society to move forward on. Uh, so what's your take on that? Well, for sure, right? We know from history that all fiat currency eventually goes to zero, right? Governments can't, um, they can't resist the temptation to debase their currency. Uh, and when they do that, what they're doing is just stealing purchasing power from their citizens, right? Everybody knows that. Although, well, I should say all Bitcoiners know that and people who understand money know that and the people who control money know that. Uh, but the vast majority of Americans still don't know that. Um, so what happens is they can't resist. Purchasing power continues to decline over time. When we have this Keynesian credit-based economic system, you have to have inflation. Uh, you have to continue to grow your credit base uh, because you're constantly just rolling over your debt and rolling over your debt and compounding and compounding and compounding. That's what we call the debt spiral, which eventually turns into a death spiral for the underlying currency, right? So it continues until basically people are like, I don't want your fiat currency anymore because it's basically worthless. Why would I continue to get paid in this currency that costs you nothing to make, uh, but you're giving that to me as payment? You know, eventually what happens is people lose confidence in that currency and it goes to zero. And that's literally 100% of the time with fiat currencies, you go to zero. Uh, so I have no doubt in my mind that all of the current government fiat currencies are going to go to zero. Not in my lifetime necessarily, they could. Um, but I do think the dollar, you know, it's the strong, it's, you know, the, it's the best crack house on the crack street as, as Foss would say, or something like that. Um, but it, and it is right. It's the strongest fiat currency. It has the strongest military in the world behind it. They have this sweetheart deal with the rest of the world where you buy our bonds and you'll, you'll fund our military, whether you want to or not. And we'll basically provide worldwide military service for you, uh, for us though. Um, and so, so we get to export our inflation to the nations and we get to enjoy lots of the benefits that, you know, people have been calling for 
the demise of the dollar for a long time. It's not going down anytime soon, but I do believe with my, I'm with my whole heart that it is going down eventually. And, you know, it's one of the laws. It's almost like a law of physics, right? Things you can count on death and taxes. You can also count on fiat debasement, but you can also count on Bitcoin uh, deflation, right? So, so growth of purchasing power over time. And it's just the mechanics. It's the math behind the system. So like we were talking about coming full circle, you know, why do we blather on about, why do, why do I talk about Powell? Well, in the, in the central banks and what is the Fed uh, doing? We, unfortunately, we have to, because in 2008, 2009, the Fed wrested control of the risk markets uh, from the underlying economy uh, almost completely. Uh, and, and it's now based on monetary uh, decisions and fiscal decisions and not necessarily on what the economy is doing underneath it. Uh, and that's not just true in the U.S. It's true with all of the major economies around the world. And so, you know, all of our governments have spending problems. The central bankers and Powell and the Fed, they get a lot of flack and they should, but it's actually not their fault per se. It's actually the fault of governments that just cannot stop spending. The governments spend and they spend and they spend and they create debt. And if nobody is willing to buy that crappy debt that's uh, actually losing purchasing power to inflation over time, the Fed is the buyer of last resort of these treasuries. So that's the purpose of these central banks is to be the buyer of last resorts of the government's debt. Um, and so they're, they're very intricately intricately linked. Uh, so, so what's the end? You know, this is a re really long answer to your question. The end is zero. The dollar is going to zero. All fiat currency is going to zero. Again, I'm not saying that it's happening this year or next year, but it is happening in some government fiat currencies, right? We were watching it in real time in Lebanon, Argentina. You can see lots of countries that are struggling around the world. One by one, they're going to figure out that, hey, we actually have a viable alternative. It's as, it's, it's as accessible as the internet is. It's called Bitcoin. Uh, and this can actually save us from our governments. Uh, and then the final thing is, and, uh, and then we'll go back to uh, Tomer, um, you know, the, whoever controls the money has the power, right? We all grew up knowing the adage, money is power. So the makers of the money and the controllers of the money have all the power. Governments have all the power. The U.S. government is the most powerful nation state in the world, in the history of the world, because of the monetary policies that we've had since basically, you know, post-World War II. Um, uh, we don't want to give up that exorbitant privilege. It's a huge privilege. It's a huge benefit to Americans as well. And so, well, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I, you said we would transition. So I want to I want to point out um, that that privilege uh, comes at a big cost. And, and again, when we say we, um, the people who've paid a very dear price for that privilege is the American middle class, the American working class, the American union worker, um, all of those people. Because what happened when we went off the gold, when the world went off the gold standard and America, and this is Peter Zahan's original thesis, right? That uh, America became the superpower, protected the shipping ways, gave everyone access to their, um, to their economy. And when we went off the gold standard, basically America exported protecting <laughs> military protection of importing stuff made abroad into America in exchange for us dollars, which secured, you know, the world and prevented, wars as long as you accepted it. If you didn't accept the US dollar, war somehow came to you. But um, but peace came to you in the form of military bases and, and ships, na naval ships to protect your goods to be shipped into America. But as that happened, and this was a, a long, slow shift, Nico's too young to remember it. I don't know how old you are, Dr. Jeff. I'm probably a little bit older than you. Um, and people older than me remember even the time when there were like no imported cars on the roads. Um, and and what, what, what this led to was everyone who had U.S. dollars in the U.S. basically buying goods that were made abroad and shipped and, and, and imported into America. And that led to the erosion of most manufacturing, uh, like a lot of manufacturing jobs. Not your house can't be imported. So real estate, uh, you know, whole house building is still um, done locally. But many, many components are now imported um, and certainly uh, just about. You know, this computer I'm talking to you on was made and manufactured, assembled in China, even though it was designed by an American company. And uh, and just about everything that I'm looking at, this piece of assembled furniture that it sits on. I did the assembly work, not an American paid worker, uh, but a Chinese factory assembled it. And so what's what's what happened is we hollowed out the middle class and they're the ones paying the price today. Right. Um, they're 
the number of people who are in the middle class or the amount of income. The middle class used to represent something like 60% of all the income, um, and now it's under 40%. Uh, so like a, a full third, roughly, of, of the income that the middle class had is no longer middle class income. And, and you go to WTF happened in 1971.com, you can see where it all went. It went to the very, very top elite. So we've paid this big price for this privilege that isn't a privilege that all Americans benefit from or all North Americans or all Westerners benefit from. It's a privilege that the elite class doesn't. It's, and many of us are in that elite class. We're service workers, we're executives, we're lawyers, we're professionals who, who haven't lost their share of the income as a, as a result. Um, but this is, oh, there we go. There's an interesting chart, right? 1971. Thank you for sharing this, whoever is uh, doing that magic. Worker productivity has gone up uh, by 150% to like two, from 100 to 250. But worker compensation has hardly budged. Um, so all that productivity, all that increase has gone somewhere else. And there's, there's lots of other charts along this, these lines that people can check there or do, or do your own research. You don't have to do too much uh, research. The number of uh, people employed by unions uh, who protected, who worked for people to have pensions. Nobody's getting a pension anymore nowadays who worked for people to have safe working conditions, all this kind of stuff. Like that's dropped dramatically. And, and most importantly, right, it's in the private sector, it's dropped off profoundly right like in the government sector well government union those kind of things end up working together people work together but they're providing service work right and so they're not building things so we've just had this hollowing out of our ability and like some of this knowledge is is lost to the point where we don't have it anymore like we can't just tomorrow fire up all sorts of factories. We have to learn how to fire up factories. We have to learn how to make things. And, and things are made the way that they're made abroad. You know, the reliable, durable, unbreakable kind of appliances that we used to have, they don't exist anymore. Everything's built to be as cheap and breakable as possible. I'll, I'll just like one final anecdote. I, it was part of this was seen through the Walmartization of retail, right? Big box retail where, um, where, the intention was, and again, these good intentions, right? Like the intention was so that ordinary folks could afford the nice things that wealthy people could have. But that came by making slave <laughs> slave labor overseas produce those things for what we called ordinary folks who now are finding themselves buying much lower quality things than they ever imagined uh, they would and and don't and have a bleak outlook uh, for, yep. for their future. So it's kind of the pivot point. I, I just want to say the pivot point that we stand at is this continues and we end up with a very bifurcated West, right? With people who have elite access to things. Manufacturing doesn't serve the masses anymore. It's just, we just build fancy yachts for the, uh, the ultra rich and, and uh, other people eat garbage. Or we find the pivot point, which is people, the masses get sound money and use sound money and don't get exploited by all the things that are broken with the dollar, right? The dollar isn't just the elite have the privilege of printing it and keeping it for themselves. It's like, well, we use it. We all collectively fell into the fallacy of using it to buy cheap foreign products. So look at all this stuff I filled my house with, but I was filling it with lost jobs, lost North American jobs, and lost quality of North American manufacturing. Some people would argue it wasn't high quality enough, but it's it's like anything old in your house and anything new in your house, you can see the difference, right? One's made of plywood and, and stickers and something else is made out of an actual piece of wood or piece of metal for, that's solid and not the minimum thickness it needs to be to be able to be assembled before it collapses. Yeah, man. Um, it's, uh, it, it's, you know, I couldn't have said it like that, Tomer, but yes, the money is definitely broken. There's definitely, uh, there's definitely consequences to that. Um, and I think what you described, uh, you know, so eloquently was basically the hollowing out of the middle class. And then if you think about it from, you know, the younger generations, right? You know, younger generations, because they, have, they haven't had so many, so much years in the workforce, so we generally tend to start off poor, right? We don't, I don't think we had the opportunities that at least my parents had. And, uh, and I think this is why Bitcoin is so important to me specifically and, you know, and, and to everyone really. So mm -hmm. Dr. Ross, back to you. Okay. So we had some big news with the BlackRock Bitcoin ETF, uh, the spot ETF. I 
had I had two interesting conversations. I had an interesting conversation with Caitlin Long and Lawrence, and they come from the skeptical perspective where they're just like, they're going to rehypothecate the F out of this. And then I talked to Foss and Lavish, and they're like, no, this is good for Bitcoin. They're not going to be able to rehypothecate it because it's a spot Bitcoin ETF. So I want to get your take on that, and then we'll pass it on to Tomer again. Okay, so that's deep. So, so where do I come in between all those those four people, um, who, who whom I all uh, respect greatly? Um, let's see. So, so couple points. First of all, um, you know, Larry Fink, what is was the king of ESG, which I think is uh, actually pretty evil. Uh, I, I think people think they're saving the world and the environment when they are pro uh, proponents of ESG. Uh, and it actually causes more harm than good. And he he has been pushing that narrative as well as this anti-Bitcoin narrative uh, for a very long time. So it is a big deal that Larry Fink, of all people, uh, is out there on the you know CNBC and Bloomberg and these major economic news channels talking about Bitcoin like it's a good thing. Um, that is a huge narrative shift. Why? Uh, for people who were around three years ago or so, you may remember when some different hedge fund managers came out, uh, big time hedge fund managers like Drunken Miller, Paul Tudor Jones, even a little bit Ray Dalio. They came out and were talking uh, favorably about Bitcoin and saying that they own some Bill Miller as well. Uh, and, and what did that do? It removed career risk for hedge fund managers to own Bitcoin at, at, in size. Uh, now, fast forward to today, uh, when uh, somebody like Larry Fink of BlackRock says, you know what, uh, we're, we want to create a spot Bitcoin ETF. And I think Bitcoin is sort of like, you know, uh, digital gold. Uh, it's an international asset, those kind of things. He's not, by the way, a Bitcoin guru. He, I think he's, uh, I, I have a uh, uh, I think he has his own fiat purposes for it. He, he wants to wrap it in a fiat wrapper and, and make a lot of money off of it. And he, and he will. Um, but he has changed the narrative. So when he comes out and says, I, you know, you should have Bitcoin in your portfolio because it's this asset that's here to stay. What that does is it changes the career risk uh, equation for fund managers and for investment advisors and financial planners who before this had been extremely uh, opposed to Bitcoin. They believe the headlines. They said, yes, it's evil. It, it, it's used by criminals. It, it's, it's boiling the oceans, blah, blah, blah. All of the nonsense FUD, right, that we've been uh, forced to listen to and read uh, for the last several years. All of that has changed, I think. There's, there's a palpable shift in the narrative uh, because of Larry Fink and coming on board with that. So that's net positive. It's obviously net positive for the price of Bitcoin, right? If, if people are in this technology because it's number go up technology, and it is, uh, this will help the price to go up more. Uh, institutions could not participate in, uh, for the most part in Bitcoin rallies in the past. Now they have the infrastructure uh, in place and setting up more so, so that they will bring in a wave of liquidity into the price and that will be net positive. Now, uh, to, to, to the points of these other people, what are the downsides? Um, first of all, Larry Fink, uh, I do not believe is a fanatical, he's not Michael Saylor, right? Not, not even close. And he's, he, he doesn't understand it. Like we understand it. He wants to wrap it. I, I call it wrapped Bitcoin. A spot Bitcoin ETF is basically sort of the same thing. It's not, it's not the same as owning Bitcoin for people who own Bitcoin and have it in cold storage and they are their own banks. They are enjoying the benefits of Bitcoin, the permissionless nature of Bitcoin. When you buy a spot Bitcoin ETF, if and when they get approved, um, you you own a product. You get to uh, enjoy the price appreciation of Bitcoin, but none of the other benefits. And you don't actually own that Bitcoin. You you own an IOU of Bitcoin. Uh, so that those are my statements on there. And then finally, you know, can it be manipulated? Um, for sure, Wall Street will always find ways to manipulate. You know, can they really do that with this spot Bitcoin ETF? Not really. Uh, so I, I would side on that, right? They, the, the, the rules of those are you just buy and sell shares based on the the supply, the demand of, of Bitcoin, whether it's going up or down. They should technically hold the amount of Bitcoin in their trust that the, the people demand. And by the way, one other point, all we ever talk about is BlackRock and Fink, but there's going to be 15 to 20 other spot Bitcoin ETFs out there within a few months of, uh, uh, of BlackRock approval, if that happens uh, in the near future. So that's what I, hopefully that all made sense. I do have a lot of opinions opinions on that. It's, it's definitely going to be a positive for, for price action. Uh, um, but you, we have to, we have to fight for the soul of Bitcoin to maintain this, you know, parallel financial and monetary network. And I'll gotcha. stop there. Okay. I want to, I want to end that with that. We have to fight for the soul of Bitcoin 
Tomer. That's right up your alley. Well, uh, so, so it's so good. Thank, thankfully, we have something that's attacking Bitcoin that makes us fight for the soul of Bitcoin. Because mm-hmm. the only danger to Bitcoin is that there aren't people stop fighting for the soul of Bitcoin. The complacency on our part, thinking that we've won, that the that the war is over, um, is is the only real danger Bitcoin faces. Like as long as uh, there are people explaining the things that Jeff just explained about how important it is to hold your own keys, about how important it is to not let everything get wrapped up or rehypothecated at all, or any of these things. That's that's the movement, right? Bitcoin is Bitcoin is not just a piece of technology that runs itself. Although nobody is in charge of it, we are all in charge of it, right? Like we all we all run Bitcoin, and so it requires that we run it with attention to the detail of how it's meant to be run and that people are curious. And, and as long as there's people out there saying, if you only hold uh, BlackRock ETF Bitcoin, then BlackRock can change Bitcoin. But if a whole lot of us hold self-custodied Bitcoin, all BlackRock can do is make some stupid fork, um, which has happened before in history and will certainly happen again. And it'll serve wonderfully as another reminder of what real Bitcoin, what real free money is, what real decentralized money is against someone who's tried to create a centralized fork of it and is going through machinations and, and pr- pretend things. And you know, as we move forward through history, different things are, are going to happen. You know, and as, as is the case with history, things will rhyme. They won't, they won't repeat themselves, but they'll rhyme and they'll be similar. And so people being concerned about BlackRock succeeding and trying to take control of Bitcoin is wonderful. Right. Um, Because it means people are becoming vigilant or remaining vigilant about what it takes for Bitcoin to succeed. And I think as long as we do that, we actually have nothing to fear. Right. Like I I can see there will be a big let's say the BlackRock ETF gets approved. There's a big rush of dollars in uh, into the bit uh, into the BlackRock ETF. It ends up owning a whole lot of Bitcoin. What's going to happen is. A lot of people are going to warn a lot of other people to say, you know, they can rehypothecate it and you don't have proof of reserves. You don't actually control the coins. You can't do A, B, C, D with it. All you can do is sell it for dollars and then and then use dollars. And so as as all the various things happen in the Bitcoin ecosystem, more and more people will want to say, well, okay, how do I convert my BlackRock ETF not back into dollars, but into actual Bitcoin? And not all Bitcoin will be self-custody, right? This is another important thing to remember. But there are different ways in which Bitcoin might seem to be wrapped that are more or less secure, you know, more more or less decentralized. And I think that's part of the growth. Like, I don't have the answers to exactly how it will fully scale up. There's all these new scaling solutions. They each have their strengths and weaknesses. And the mix of all of these scaling solutions, I think, is what's going to keep Bitcoin decentralized while also scaled to hopefully every single person on the planet or you know every single one of them who wants to use it when many of them realize that all of its benefits and do do want to use it so maybe pause there there's a few other angles to go down but i uh this is good for bitcoin because it looks like it's gonna be bad for bitcoin yeah i I love i love that i love that uh that that angle right which is you know it it gets people gets people to care and, and people are suspicious rightly so uh, what you were saying earlier, Dr. Ross, about it's true. Larry Fink was one of the biggest proponents of, you know, this whole ESG movement. But I, I was actually talking to, uh, was, I think it was Jimmy Song a couple weeks ago, Tomer. And we were talking about the, the and I think we, we, we were talking about this in, earlier in the conversation as well, is this kind of misalignment of incentives. I think fee, the fiat system itself as Frankenstein, the incentives. And I think people like Larry Fink and people like Powell, um, you know, you, you, you're basically making the case that they, they, you know, because they're in these positions of power at such heights, they choose to put a veil over their heads and just, you know, blank out, blank blank out. out a lot of the externalities of what they are. Correct. Are so and it's a good life, right? It's like you, yeah, you have a safe job. There's no danger. You have access. You get a you get a pension. You have inside information, which you kind of trade on. But you also have protection from inside <laughs> insider trading rules. Like you, you are super privileged, right? You're yeah. You you get caught drunk driving. The police officer turns <laughs> away, or the charges get dropped, right? Like there's a tremendous amount of privilege involved in in these uh, situations. And listen, like. Put yourself in the position that you actually were drunk driving and you got caught and because of your position the person said 
the, the officer let you go, would you say, no, no, you should charge me? You know, because it's not fair because I know you would charge somebody else. You, you take what you've got and you take and you accept the privilege and advantage that you have. And I think that that's, um, that's what everybody is fundamentally guilty of in a lot of cases. They're not like, no, you know, I, I, deserve, I deserve my just desserts. They're like, good thing, I, good thing I got away with this this time. Maybe I won't do it again because who knows if I'll get away with it next time. But there's just a lot of this brokenness. And, and you know, I don't want to say that this, is, that this psychological factor is something that Bitcoin fixes, right? Like people who find themselves in a position of privilege, taking advantage of it when it presents itself is, is a flying human psychology, right? It, it's not, it's not even a flaw. It's a self-defense mechanism, survival mechanism, right? Like you, you should die. I will let you live. Which do you choose? Well, I choose to live, right? So like that's, that's the incentive. I think what, what Bitcoin fixes, it's taking away all of these broken incentives and, and broken pr privileges. And everybody's like, it's a peer to peer system, right? Everyone, there's one rank in Bitcoin. Everybody has it, peer, and everyone has access to it. And there's no special rank. There's no, you know, the, there's peer, which is participant. And then there's non-participant. And non-participants don't influence and affect the system. Um, but what we're trying to do is educate everybody in the world so that they choose to be a participant. Um, not are forced to be a participant, although in many cases in the future, people might say, oh, what choice did I have but to use Bitcoin? That's what everybody wants. Well, you, you, have, you still have the choice to not use Bitcoin, right? Like nobody is holding a gun to your head and saying you must use Bitcoin. People are holding a gun to your head and saying you must pay, you must use the dollar, right? Like over here, it's it's quiet. But if you don't use the dollar, you're forbidden, you know, from from transacting. But it's 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 worse than a gun to your head. It's a nuclear missile to your you know to your state. It, it's it's an, it's fighter jets over your state if you don't use if you don't use an accepted dollar. So, like this is a really revol. It's the biggest revolution because it's the voluntary revolution. You know, people call it the peaceful revolution. In a sense, yes, but it's it's the voluntary revolution. Every Bitcoiner in the world chose to be a Bitcoiner. They weren't born into a Bitcoin standard. They weren't born into a world where someone said you must use Bitcoin. And so, like, it's going to take time because this isn't we conquer nations one at a time like Alexander the Great. We march in and we say from now on, these are your coins. It's like every single person is persuaded individually. And they're not even persuaded to make it their sole currency, right? Like every one of us. I think is mixed, right? But I still have dollars. I still have, I, I have Bitcoin. I want to be able to rid myself of the dollar. But even in that case, I acknowledge that I live in a reality where, where it's mixed. So this, this peaceful empire, this of the of the realm of Bitcoin, where Bitcoin is the coin of, of the realm, is a one one by one revolution. Yeah, uh, through yeah. reason, not through violence. And, and I, I think that's kind of where it's interesting. We haven't heard that much from Jason Lowry lately. Um, he had this thesis that Bitcoin is, some, is a kind of military technology. It's a form of software. And I, I find myself like split so far apart that I come back around to myself on this. Like we're at war over market share of what we use as currency of what we use as store of value. And Bitcoin's at war with the dollar. It's, the dollar's at war with real estate and other securities and everything because many people have chosen that they don't want to use the dollar and so the dollar is there by force of government and all these other instruments are there and ways to avoid the hidden tax of inflation and bitcoin is fighting that and bitcoin survives it in a very different way it survives it by having very by having no leaders and having nothing that you can touch and destroy and not being in any place at any point in time and hiding behind encryption and so it's like it's a survival uh, it's a, it's a survival thing and um, and so in that sense, it's at war. But war involves destruction. <laughs> Typically, when people talk about it, it involves destruction and violence and bloodshed. And Bitcoin doesn't. And Jason acknowledges this in his book. So I don't want to mischaracterize what he says. But th this is something where, you know, even if you want to attack Bitcoin, you don't do it by force. You, you do it by trying to mine, trying to double spend a block and mine it. So you do it through this nonviolent means. So even going to war with Bitcoin is nonviolent. Uh, so the whole thing is just, it's so new. And so like, I, I, it's such a revolutionary idea, not, not in the sense that it's a, yes, it's a revolution in how we think of money, but it's an idea that's so extraordinary, that's so unprecedented, 
it's so revolutionary in that sense. It's just even thinking about it and using typical words to describe it is really, really hard because. So, so, many, that, yeah. so Tomer, and, and that's why, like, that's why it's this revolutionary idea. It's ground up. I agree with you, right? It's, it's winning over. It's not this top down type of movement that's being force fed uh, down people's throats. It's really winning over the hearts and minds of people via greed. And, and that's why, and I want to pass it on to Dr. Jeff Ross. I, I want to get your, your, your thoughts on this. Um, that's why I believe like maybe you're starting to see Larry Fink bend the knee to Bitcoin's irresistible incentives. Um, and then maybe is that what we're seeing Dr. Ross or is this, is this, are you still cautious? So, so a couple of things. Well, first of all, regarding Fink, I am still cautious. I think he's still a fiat maxi and he's just using this. He sees this as a new product where he can make a ton of money by building ETFs around it. So he wants to wrap Bitcoin in a fiat product and make a ton of money. And he will. He'll get even more wealthy than he is. But so but getting to your point and to Tomer's point about, you know, Jason Lowry and the military, Bitcoin is for everyone, right? It's inevitable that at some point, just like everybody uses the dollar today, or most people use the dollar. I, I truly think that at some point, possibly in my lifetime, every, and by to, to answer your question, Tomer, I'm 48, my birthday is next month. Uh, um, but at, I think everybody is either pre-Bitcoin or a Bitcoiner. Uh, and so, so, you know, what are we going to do? Will Wall Street embrace it? Sure. At some point, Wall Street will absolutely embrace it. In fact, they are now. At some point, will presidential candidates start talking about it? Sure. They already are right now, right? That's a huge change, a huge shift from four years ago, uh, which is pretty amazing if you think about it. Um, will military officers be into Bitcoin? Absolutely. You know, and so you can just go on and on. If, if you're a person anywhere in the world, will you someday embrace Bitcoin? I think the answer is yes. And everybody has their own belief system. System. Everybody has their own way of viewing the world, right? To a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, uh, to a surgeon, everything looks like it needs a, a surgical fix. Uh, it's just how the world works, right? And so, and so to get back to Tomer's point earlier, we shouldn't really be overly worried about it because the fact that it raises the hackles of true Bitcoiners when we see Wall Street come on board and try to wrap it and package it in their own uh, entity, um, it, it raises hackles. Uh, the cyber hornets come out. We fight again for the heart and soul of what Bitcoin is. Everybody is out there encouraging people. Hold your own keys, not your keys, not your coins, not your keys, not your coins, right? Like don't trust um, BlackRock or any major institution with your Bitcoin because we don't know what they're going to do with that. You don't take that risk. Uh, there are tons of risks to not holding your own Bitcoin. So that's how I view it. I think it's inevitable. And with every new group, every new institution, every new government that comes on board, and I do think every government at someday will come on board with Bitcoin, uh, probably in my lifetime, you know, if I live a, a typical age. Um, we'll have to deal with the repercussions of that. What does it mean if America comes into Bitcoin in force and just like, you know what, we are going to literally turn our printers on and just buy as much Bitcoin as possible. Obviously, that would be huge for the price, uh, but it would it would change, could change the heart and soul of Bitcoin. So we would need to fight against that. What about if it was China or Russia, right? That's that that brings on whole new uh, belief systems to deal with. So we just got to keep fighting and take things as they come. Uh, I think all of it is inevitable. We will fight every one of those battles uh, in the next 10 20 30 years i think i 100 agree with you have to stay vigilant i want to throw another macro question back at you dr ross and then of course tomer's interpretation of it um so um okay my question to you is <laughs> i feel like we've you've been on the pod the last year at least twice and i've asked you the same question um where's the recession it hasn't come yet uh <laughs> right. what's going on um they you know like did they achieve the soft landing if they achieve the soft landing does that mean that doesn't that mean that the central bankers got their way what's going on there where's this recession so there's there's two ways to think about it right so there's one is that the that narrative is correct and that we are going to have a soft landing could that happen? Sure. Uh, the last time that happened um, uh, significantly was 2000 to 2003 or so. Uh, after everybody remembers that as the dot com crash, but we did have a mild recession during that period as well, and stocks did not did not do well over that period. And Nasdaq stocks got decimated; they went down like 80 some percent. What happened then? It's similar to what we're seeing so far today. We're we're actually in uh, um, uh, indisputable 
manufacturing recession right now. Manufacturing has been contracting both in the U.S. and around the world for several months now. Um, it's absolutely in a recession. People are losing manufacturing jobs. Uh, um, new orders continue to kind of dry up. It's pretty ugly out there if you're in the manufacturing industry. But America is not a manufacturing economy anymore. Tomer actually touched on this earlier. It had to do with why the middle, we had a prosperous middle class before. What did we do? We exported our manufacturing offshore. We gave, gave most of it to Asia, lots of it to China. Uh, um, so America is a services, a service-based economy now. Services are not yet in a contraction and they may not be. So when we get these, what we call soft landing recessions, what usually happens is uh, similar to what we see, what we're seeing today is unemployment doesn't budge too much. Uh, manufacturing goes into contraction mode, but the services uh, sector remains in a somewhat mild expansionary mode, which is what they are right now. If it's, it's possible that manufacturing will bottom in the next couple of months and then turn higher and get back to expansionary mode, we may actually avoid a significant recession. That's actually possible. Um, uh, but when you look at things like the uh, credit standards are tightening, uh, uh, lending is, is kind of drying up significantly with banks. We still have these regional bank issues out there. We still have these rates that are suffocating businesses. We still have lots of junk rated uh, companies with junk rated debt that are not going to be able to roll over their debt. They've been paying really low interest rates on, you know, even though they have a crappy business, those interest rates are jacked up like 6% or more higher. And to Tomer's point, they're paying many multiples of dollars more than they used to have to pay. They are going to go under. We're seeing lots of defaults already start to happen. The longer rates stay high, uh, the less chance these companies, I call them zombie companies because they can't afford to pay their debt, um, the less chance they have at surviving. If that happens and it rolls over quickly, that could throw us into a deeper recession. So that's the other path. So path one is we actually do get this soft recession and it turns out, hey, I guess those guys were right. The other path is services get sucked down into contractionary mode or recessionary mode like uh, manufacturing is. We see this huge spillover into these junky companies and they they go they go up they go belly up they default uh on their debt uh and we have a serious recession and and you know you look at the yield curve still being inverted what that tells me is we're still not at the point where the recession is ready to start yet look at the yield curve inversion look at unemployment it still remains low it's undeniable it just continues to remain very low um if we do head into a deep recession that will spike and it will spike quickly and then um, the other thing to look at uh, as far as a recessionary indicator is the high yield OAS, options adjusted spreads. That's the difference in the yields between this high yield or junk debt, what that yields, which is typically much higher than what underlying treasuries uh, yield. When you're in a, um, a complacent economy and the stock market's doing well, like we are right now and volatility is low, that spread shrinks over time. But when you head into recession and people start to panic and those companies start to go bankrupt, you'll see that yield blow out. So right now we're in this kind of like Goldilocks happy place with, with that indicator. If and when we do head into a recessionary bear market, we'll see that spread blow out, uh, and that'll be the time to to get nervous, uh, to get to get worried. So to answer your question, where is it? It's not here yet, and I don't think it's coming, uh, you know, anytime soon based on the indicators I look at. Um, if it does, you know, I'll have you can have me back on your show, and I'll let you know that I'm starting to get nervous again. But I'm not nervous right now. Gotcha, gotcha. And then my question to you, Tomer, is if they pull off this soft landing. Doesn't that kind of defeat a lot of the narratives that Bitcoiners were saying about central bankers? Like, it's interesting. I, I try to focus on real life rather than all the financial instruments and derivatives and, and, and where things stand. And as far as I'm concerned in my own personal life and in the lives of the people around me, we've been in a recession slash depression since March of 2020, since COVID hit and we started to lock down and we found ourselves hoarding toilet paper and we couldn't find toilet paper and we were not going out to the movies anymore and not going to plays and not going to sporting events and not going to restaurants and not going to theaters. And our quality of life in terms of what we're actually doing and spending and enjoying has took a step back. And for very few people who I know, has it does it seem to have returned to pre-2020 levels? Um, and so, like for me, there people are people are watching what they buy. They're pinching their their pennies. They are 
concerned, they're carrying anxiety around because they don't because the future seems uncertain. Um, many people still carry over concerns about healthcare. What we do spend our money on has become skewed, not to things that increase our actual quality of life, but increase our con- you know our concerns. There's more money spent on anxiety medication vaccines, all, all these sorts of things. I, I can't be too concrete about everything because everyone's experience is different, but I just see that there's less, you know, there's less stakes in the supermarket because the price is higher and people are buying less of it. That is, that to me is a recession, right? I used to be able to afford steak regularly. Now I buy ground beef when I can't and I buy ramen noodles if I'm in a different situation. So I, I think, I think we've, we've suffered a setback, you know, some of it to again, be fair to the central bankers is the world got caught in a panic, maybe rightly, maybe wrongly about uh, how dangerous um, COVID was. And we went into this lockdown mode and a lot of the economy shut down. Like people didn't, people stopped going to the uh, slaughterhouses. So no wonder meat dried up. People stop going to factories. People stop doing all sorts of things. It's kind of easy to restart a service economy. But if the services are, you're going to see a therapist because you've got psychological conditions, uh, that measures as a growth in GDP. It does not measure in a growth in our quality of life. If you didn't need a therapist before, that was a better situation. So I, I'm, I, I find this a very cloudy uh, picture. It's one thing to just measure things as a number as GDP, but it is, it's quite another to say like, what's my quality of life? What's my quality of happiness? Am I happier? And that, that's why I think recession is kind of this well, word, right? The real word is the word that people used to use was depression. Am I finding myself depressed as mm. my mood, my quality of life destroyed, or am I in a joyful period? And I, I just don't see anywhere near as much joy as we used to see uh, years ago. And, and the, we're at the risk of forgetting how joyful we once were and how um, how anxious uh, and anxiety-ridden we, we now are. So I don't mean to paint it as a negative picture, but but zooming out, I'm just not seeing the kind of happiness and joy that we, that we experienced before all this got going. And so I'm less... I'm less focused on these small percentage points of numbers and yield curves and options and stuff and just saying, I want to be happier. I want to see the people around me happier and doing the kinds of things that make them happy and not so distressed. But I don't know, maybe I'm gloomy and turning people off, but it just seems to me that that is uh, a real I, I, I love I love the way that you define that. And I, and I actually want to push it off, push it back to Dr. Ross. Under that definition, under that outlook, right? Because it's a lot more personable. Um, would would you say we we like we're in uh, Tomer's definition or the way that Tomer described a recession or depression? Yeah, hundred percent. In fact, to to piggyback and accentuate what Tomer said, we went uh, uh, over two years, which I think was the longest streak ever for the United States, with decreasing. Uh, real income, meaning that even though Americans had some income growth, inflation grew faster for over two straight years, meaning quality of life for everybody went down, meaning everybody's working hard, but they can afford less and less. So the steak Tomer was talking about, now they're buying hamburger, right? And, And that's happening all across America. And so you see that, you know, Money isn't happiness, but man, when you have money problems, you struggle and it's hard to, to, to be happy, right? And that causes, that's the number one uh, issue uh, in marriages. So bad marriages, the number one uh, thing that people struggle with uh, is, is money issues. So totally agree with that. And in fact, I think that's going to be, unfortunately, the theme of this decade. I think we're going to have what, what we call stagflation. Again, that's just another fancy term. All that means is a stagnant economy, so not much growth happening, but higher than uh, we're used to and more volatile inflation. The last time we had that significantly was back in the 1970s, even though life is really, we have a lot more debt now, so it's actually worse now. Uh, but the I'm last time we- I remember it. I live that? I'm old enough to remember it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I was born in the 70s. I think I was born in the worst year of, of that. Um, but so, so case in point though, that was remembered as a tough decade for America and a tough decade uh, around the world, mostly the Western world, actually emerging markets did okay. Um, there are different, so, you know, as an investor, there are different ways to think about things that do well. Uh, things like hard assets, things like gold, uh, you know, property did well, commodities in general did well, emerging markets did well as investments. And I think, you know, obviously they didn't have Bitcoin around that time. Now we do. 
to me, that's very encouraging for people who are in the Bitcoin space. If you're just hunkering down and working hard and staying humble, as Odell would say, and stacking sats, um, you're, I think you're going to do pretty well. And you may notice that your quality of life and your depression levels uh, should improve relative to the rest of America. I'm actually worried for America as a whole for this decade. I think it's going to be a really rough and tumultuous decade in general for America. And we're already living through it. It started in 2020 and it's just, it's just continuing on. Yeah. So I, I want to be respectful of you guys' time. We are at the top of the hour. So I want to get some closing, thought, uh, closing thoughts from you, Tomer, first, and then Dr. Ross. So Tomer, how do we bring back the joy? How do we bring back the, the, the happiness? That's a great question. I mean, I, I think part of it is, um, is, is learning to, you know, I think back to the seventies and again, this notion of history rhyming and people became comfortable. They adapted to the fact that the economy wasn't growing. They adapted to the fact that there was inflation and they found happiness in it through culture, right? Like it, you take a look at the music from the late seventies, it's a little bit sad, but it's beautiful music. And, uh, and, you know, and we ended up with good movies and we ended up with a lot of, a lot of good culture. So I, I think, I think we, we kind of went to this point where our culture really got corrupted and, and maybe I'm hopeful we'll start to see positive culture emerging from the, from the, the, the decadence and the blowout of the decadence. Cause you can't, you can't rely on decadence, decadence for it. I, I think, I do think Bitcoin is the unique, you know, it's the wild card in history that didn't exist back then. Right. The, that seventies recession was caused by None other than 1971, right? Like suddenly the governments had all this money. They started spending. You, you can take a look at the charts again, like of deficits. And, and like suddenly in 1972, there's a deficit as big as World War II, even though we're not at war. And, and they only grow from there. Uh, so Bitcoin is this wild card because it offers this transition to a way to get back into sound money that the government can't stop. Like they seized, they seized all the gold. So you couldn't get, you couldn't get the gold back to return to a gold standard and, and everything was accelerating. So I'm hopeful that there's this gradual adoption of Bitcoin that brings us back to sound money and makes us respond and, you know, returns this notion of responsibility. And I, and with responsibility comes joy. Some of this stuff is cycles that repeat. Some of it is accelerated or amplified by, other kinds of big problems that we've had. And I think we've had all kinds of big problems. I don't, I, you know, I don't have the crystal ball, so I don't know exactly where we sit in the course of the demise of, um, of the fiat currency. But, but given that we're headed for tough times, I think people will learn to, uh, learn to live with tough times and, and that, and then the joy comes back. Cause right now it's a, the depression comes from the fact that you missed all the, all the decadence that you had and you want it back and you feel poor about it when you come to accept it, learn to have fun staying poor is, uh, <laughs> is part of the, is part of the answer. Um, but you know, and, and part of it is just, uh, bearing down and, uh, and continuing to do what's good. Yeah. And staying humble, stacking sats and, uh, Dr. Ross, how do how do investors navigate the next six to 12 months? And of course this isn't advice. This, is, this isn't this isn't financial advice, but uh, as if we were speaking as friends. Yeah, never advice, right? I can't give that. I literally can't give it. It's it's not not legal for me to do so. So just in general, right? What are we talking about generally? There are still there's lots of ugliness out there. I think we're going to be talking about this kind of stuff for the rest of this decade, probably. Uh, it's going to be a, a frustrating, uh, volatile, tumultuous decade in general. The things that worked really well last decade when we had zero interest rate policy and just massive QE are less likely to work this decade just because it's it's a different decade, right? Uh, and so so you just have to think about things, you know, come, to, to, to sum everything up and to sort of piggyback on what Tomer was saying, the people who control the money have the power, right? And so that control right now rests almost uh, predominantly with the United States government uh, and their central bank. Uh, Bitcoin is so unique because what it does is it transfers the ownership and the control of money back to the people. It distributes it out to the world, to the people. So over time, I do think that in our lifetime, in my lifetime, we're going to see that power distribution get sucked out slowly from the government in this sly roundabout way 
and go over to the people. And so over time, what we're going to see is Bitcoiners start to flourish, right? They're going to start to work hard. They're going to start to build things that last instead of this cheap stuff that breaks. Um, they're going to be, become savers instead of speculators. Uh, and it's going to incentivize a totally different and I think a much better world. Uh, it's going to take a while, though. I mean, it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen because we voted the right president in for sure, right? It's not the politicians who are going to do that. It's because of this sly roundabout incentive structure that's different from the current one and very and and uh, I think much better. The, the people who are in charge right now who benefit from the current structure and from the Cantillon effects from being close to the money printer, those kind of people, they're going to still hate it all the way, you know, until they die probably. Uh, but for the rest of the world, for humanity, I'm actually extremely hopeful, despite this really dark decade and this kind of scary and tumultuous decade, I'm very hopeful that the future is going to be much brighter and much better for, you know, when I'm older, but especially for my kids and grandkids, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to what's next. That's really, well said, maybe I can just uh, finish off, finish that thought off with with a capstone of a thought on it. I think, you know, your happiness is, is in a, a sense a function of what you measure your happiness with. And for those people who are measuring with a low time preference for the long term, we're at the dawn of an amazing age, right? We're at the dawn of the return of multi-generational projects, money that can last, money that is sound, a civilization that will be based off of sound practices, right? That when I talked about how we, the future will look back at this time and say we used a primitive money. We're on the verge of not being primitive anymore. But for people who measure everything in the short term, who are like next month, next week, next quarter, they're in for many quarters of misery um, because they won't be seeing the big picture of what's shifting. They're they're just seeing what's short. So and, and they'll be critical of Bitcoin. They'll say, look, Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin hasn't gone up in the last year. How can you tell me it's the next great thing? It's like, I'm not focused on the next year, right? I'm focused on my kids and their kids and, and what the generations can do and the excitement about the generational projects we're going to get into. Bitcoin is itself, of course, a generational project, right? Just phase one, the initial coin distribution takes 140 years, right? Like that's the way that Satoshi was thinking about this thing. So it's like, this is not, he didn't build it to succeed in the first quarter that he launched it. He didn't even necessarily build it to succeed in his lifetime. Um, he didn't build it to succeed in our lifetime. He built it to last for generations, uh, for who knows how many years, right? That, that initial block is there forever, right? Like it's indestructible, yeah. immalleable. Uh, so it's a monument to last forever. And and I think that that's, that's where the hope and the joy uh, can really come from. And as we start to see success in there, you know, like people were, poor people have been very joyful in history. People came who came to America to escape persecution and got to build from nothing, right? You got to America, there wasn't like a welcome party. There wasn't a border security guard. There wasn't a highway. There wasn't, there was nothing. Uh, but it was a chance to build your, to build the future for yourself at the frontier. And I think that's where we are right now, the frontier of a new world with all the benefits that the last 200 years have built. So let's not Beautiful. be too uh, self, fill, filled with self-pity. Beautiful. I love it. I love it. All right, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Dr. Jeff Ross, thank you. Tomer Strolight, thank you so much, gentlemen. Thank really, you. really appreciate it. Thank I'm going to put you put you guys backstage for a second while I wrap it up. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the episode, smash that like button. Consider subscribing if you feel like we provided you value. We'll be back tomorrow, 12.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm not going to be it. I'm going to be at a, I'm going to be at the Mining Disrupt Conference, but Opti's going to be holding it down. Love you all. See you guys on the next one. Peace out.